Hi, welcome to the Student Psychology Journal with your host, JY. Once again, just a disclaimer that I am not a psychologist or a professional neuroscience person. I am merely a behavioral neuroscience student with an interest in psychology. So let's get started. Today's topic is going to be on consciousness. I've always been really curious about what consciousness really means and where it comes from and how we came to acknowledge that humans have this thing called consciousness. So when I think about consciousness, I think about, oh, I'm self-aware. I'm aware that of my personality. I'm aware of the things that I do. And this all entails consciousness. There's some debate on whether animals have consciousness and they have a test called the mirror test or the mark test. And it's a self-recognition test where they put a red spot on their forehead or somewhere on their face and then they show themselves in a mirror and see if the animal touches the spot on their face, showing that they recognize that it's a reflection of them instead of another animal on the other side of the mirror. Most animals think that there's a creature on the other side of the mirror. They don't think that it's themselves. But for example, chimpanzees, our closest relative, show that they recognize themselves by looking at the mirror and touching their own eye or the red spot on their face. So does orangutans, dolphins, elephants, and magpies. In terms of humans, Psychologists say that consciousness is a person's subjective experience of the world and the mind. So whether you're awake or not does not necessarily equate to your consciousness. Some mental processes are unconscious, so they occur without our experience of them. I mean, I can think of sometimes when I do things unconsciously and I don't really know why I did them, but they just happen. Also, some of our body's processes are unconscious, so we digest our food without being conscious of it. But how do we decide if something was conscious or unconscious? There's four different factors of consciousness. And the first is intentionality. Consciousness is purposeful. We intentionally do something. If I were to intentionally punch someone in the face, that was intentional. I'm consciously aware that I punched someone. And then the second factor is unity, the ability to integrate information from all of our body's senses into a whole by our brain into a unified conscious experience. So when we go about our day-to-day lives, we see things, we hear things, we smell things, and our brain puts all of these factors together and combines them into a unified experience that could be conscious. And then there's selectivity, our capacity of conscious, of the conscious to include some objects but not others. So the brain decides what to include and what to exclude. An example of this would be dichotic listening. So there's been experiments done where a person wears headphones and different stories are told to each ear. And the brain can actually select which story you listen to and which story that you're aware of. So if I were to tell you the story of Little Riding Hood in one ear and then Three Little Pigs on the other, and I ask you to pay attention to the story about the Little Red Riding Hood, your ears will be able to select which story you listen to. But your ears are also good at identifying changes in stimuli. So if, for example, 
a male was reading the story of three little pigs the one that you weren't paying attention to and then suddenly the narrator changes to a female voice you're going to notice that switch and you're going to be aware of that even if you are selectively listening to the story of the little red riding head and people are able to filter these out and also detect changes in the stimuli and the participants are able to consciously select which one they listen to and which one they attend to and they can tell you what they heard and what went on in the storyline. Another example that's more reflective of our day-to-day lives is the cocktail party phenomenon and this is our ability to tune into messages even when there's a lot going around us. So it's called the cocktail party phenomenon because for example when you're at a party and you're talking to a friend or you're dancing or you're just minding your own business and then suddenly you hear your name from across the room from your friend or whoever you're going to notice that even if it's super loud in the room maybe not if it's super loud in the room but if that person says your name loud enough you will notice that they called your name even when there's so much going around you your brain's actually more likely to tune into your name if it's called even if you're tuning it out before So this is a part of selectivity. And then the last factor of consciousness is transience, the tendency for consciousness to change. Our focus and conscious attention is continually changing over time because we can't focus on everything at once. We have to select what we want to focus on. That's why our consciousness kind of changes. Sometimes we tune in and out of conversation. Sometimes we'll get distracted and listen to someone else. Our consciousness is not always focused and alert on one thing it's transient so with these four factors intentionality unity selectivity and transience these all make up consciousness but what can we do with our consciousness so some people think that you can control what you think so mental control the attempt to change your conscious state of mind When something is bothering you or worrying you, you try not to think about it. But you can't really do this. This is thought suppression. You're consciously trying to avoid a thought. It's not effective. It's like if I were to tell you not to think about a pink car. You probably weren't thinking about a pink car before, but now you are. And even if I told you not to think about it, and even if you told yourself not to think about it, It's very unlikely that you would be able to consciously avoid thinking about something that you don't want to think about. That's why it's ineffective when you're worrying about something to be like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't think about it. Just don't think about it. It's not very effective. It's just going to remind you every time you say, don't think about it. And then there's the rebound effect of thought suppression. When you suppress a thought, you purposely try to avoid it and push it away but it actually comes back to your consciousness more frequently. It's like you're reminding yourself by being like, oh, don't think about it. It suggests that an attempt at mental control is very difficult. So it's better just to acknowledge that you have the thought. Eventually, it'll pass. Trying to mentally control it and say, don't think about it. Don't think about your ex. Don't think about this embarrassing thing that happened to you yesterday. I can definitely understand If it's something traumatic that you don't want to remember, it's natural for us to want to push away negative thoughts. 
so I think the best method would be either to distract yourself by putting on a show or going to hang out with a friend. And then when you're ready to talk about it, just to talk to someone you trust about it. I think the more you talk about traumatic events or something that upsets you, the less power you give it and the less hard it is to think about it in the future. Another very effective method is mindfulness. A lot of professional meditators will acknowledge that they have the thought and let it drift away. Just noticing the thought and letting it drift away like a river. I'm not very good at it at the moment and I don't practice it extensively, but I know that there's a lot of research that shows that mindfulness is a very good and effective method to suppress thoughts without actually trying to suppress it. And then there's different levels of consciousness. So when we're fully conscious, we know and we're able to report our mental state. When we're fully conscious, we're fully awake, our eyes open, our basic reflexes and processes are all functioning. When we're self-conscious or we have self-consciousness, this is an indication of full consciousness. So we're fully aware of our mental state. If we're self-conscious, we're thinking about ourselves and like how we look or how we how we appear, then we're conscious of ourselves. So you're fully conscious in that state. Some examples of when we might be self-conscious would be when we are embarrassed, when group attention is on us, when we are introspective of our thoughts, feelings, or personal qualities, or when we're evaluating our shortcomings. These are all examples of times we are fully conscious because we are self-conscious in that state. Chronic self-consciousness is associated with higher risk of depression. And then there's the minimally conscious state. It's kind of like a low level of sensory awareness and responsiveness. So we may or may not be conscious of our sensations and we may or may not respond to those sensations. There is a blurred connection between us and the world, but we may not be aware of our sensations. I mean, even a plant can be minimally conscious since when they see the sun, they lean towards it to get the energy from the sun. They know that the sun is there, so they lean towards it, but they're not fully aware or conscious of it. Maybe the use of alcohol or drugs can do this to you, where you're aware, but you're not really conscious, if that's if that makes sense. So there's a, it can be also a transient level of consciousness. So you can come in and out of consciousness. I think this is more relatable when you're using alcohol or drugs and then injury can also cause minimal levels of consciousness and so does disease which we'll talk about later we're going to talk about things that can happen to alter your consciousness and then the last level is unconscious just being unaware and not being able to report a mental state it's just you're completely unaware and not responding And then there's something called daydreaming. Are we conscious when we're daydreaming? Do do you think that we're conscious when we're daydreaming? So daydreaming is considered as a state of consciousness in which a seemingly purposeless flow of thoughts come into mind. 
So it may seem like you're wasting time, but we often try to avoid boredom by daydreaming. This daydreaming leads to our default network. When people aren't busy, they show a widespread pattern of activation in many areas of the brain, and the areas of the default network are known to be involved in thinking about your social life, about yourself, and about your past and present. I guess you're kind of aware, you are conscious, but you're not fully zoned in you're not having a purposeful thought there's not really an intentionality factor to it so you are conscious but not fully now we're going to talk about disorders of consciousness disorders of consciousness is where patients aren't able to demonstrate either a full consciousness or self-consciousness And this can be due to traumatic brain injury. It occurs when outside force or an object impacts on your head and then you're unconscious. It can happen from non-traumatic brain injury, so from health conditions such as strokes or heart attacks. So the cutoff of oxygen to the brain leads the brain tissue to die a little bit, that part. And then it it could lead to a disorder of consciousness where you're not fully conscious. And then there's progressive brain damage. So progressive being neurodegenerative, so your brain progressively dies. The examples of this would be Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease. And diseases that cause brain cells to die over time are considered progressive brain damage or neurodegenerative diseases. And yeah, that's why people with Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease, they have different symptoms because it affects different parts of the brain. But Alzheimer's disease, it's a part of dementia. So it's generally characterized by the severe impairment in memory. There's a lot of Alzheimer's research going on because it's such a big problem in the older population. So hopefully we can find better treatment methods in the future. But currently, from what I know, it's a lot of preventative measures since it's virtually impossible to get dead brain tissue back. So doing things like exercise and having a good education is a really good indicator of not developing Alzheimer's disease or at least having a delayed onset of Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's could be a whole different topic, so I'll touch on that maybe a different episode, but I think it's not really relevant to the student population and then parkinson's disease is affecting the part of the brain that produces dopamine so it affects your ability to control movement and coordinate your movement you can take medication to supplement dopamine but it's not fully effective since you can't control when it's released especially when you want to coordinate movement or when you want to move purposely you can't release it when you want to do those things. You can only supplement with doses of medication. So both Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease are examples of neurodegenerative diseases that can lead to brain tissue damage. And if you damage a certain part of your brain tissue or enough of brain tissue, then that could lead to disorders of consciousness, which is what I was trying to get to with this whole ramble. Moving on to how physicians determine what level of consciousness or what disorder of consciousness you have, they use something called the Glasgow Coma Scale. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it measures your wakefulness and your awareness based on three categories of behavior. So the first is eye-opening response, 
second is the best verbal response, and the third is best motor response. Now we're going to get into the main disorders of consciousness, starting from the most severe to the least severe. I'm going to go over three, coma, vegetative state, and minimally conscious state. The first is the most severe being a coma. A person shows absolutely no signs of being aware or awake, and they're not aware of their environment or internally, they're not aware. So their brainstem is impacted, their reflex, their reflexes are impacted, their eyes and pupils are not responsive, they won't even move to painful stimuli, their spinal reflexes might still be present since it doesn't involve the brain, it just your spine sending quick signals to move your arm away from painful stimuli, and then they're not responsive, they can, they can usually last about two to four weeks. And this can happen from traumatic brain injury, non-traumatic brain injury, and also progressive brain damage. It can also occur from drugs or alcohol intoxication or even underlying illnesses such as diabetes or an infection. The second is the second most severe and it's a vegetative state. So it's wakefulness without awareness. Their cerebrum which controls our thought and behavior is not functioning, but their brainstem is. So their body homeostasis and their sleep cycle is still running. So they appear awake when they're supposed to be awake and their eyes are open, but they're not responding to any stimuli in a meaningful way because their cerebrum is impacted. But even though their cerebrum is impacted, there's still some debate on whether they are conscious or not. Because there was a study done with an fMRI where they put people in a vegetative vegetative state into an fMRI machine and they asked the participants or the patients to think about either playing tennis or navigating their house. So when they're thinking about playing tennis, there's a very particular area of the brain that's activated. And then when they're thinking about walking through a room in their house, their spatial navigation imagery, part of their brain is activated. It activates their visual and motor areas of the brain in healthy individuals. So they tested this imagery technique on patients with a vegetative state. And they did this to about 54 patients. And they found that five of those 54 patients reliably generated this pattern so they asked patients to imagine playing tennis if their answer was yes to a question and to imagine navigating through their home if their answer was no to a question and they would ask patients questions about themselves or their family and if they were to answer accurately then we would know that they are conscious they're they're aware and they can answer questions accurately And they found that five of those patients were answering the questions accurately by imagining either playing tennis or navigating through their room. And they also asked one of the patients if they could feel pain and they answered no. So it's really interesting and it brings this debate on whether you should cut life support off people in a vegetative state. For example, there was a patient named Terry Schiavo. 
She went into a cardiac arrest when she was 26 years old. Her brain went without oxygen for too long in her cardiac arrest. And so her brain had significant atrophy and death. And when your brain has death or atrophy, a part of your brain dies and you're not getting that part of your brain back. You can get more connections in other parts of your brain and compensate for that loss, but you're not getting the brain tissue back. And if it's a significant amount of brain tissue, there's really nothing you can do to get their awareness or consciousness back to their original level. And so when she went into this cardiac arrest, they resuscitated her and kept her alive in this persistent vegetative state using life-saving treatments such as a feeding tube. And there was this long ethical and legal battle between the parents and the husband. So the parents were for keeping her own life support and then her husband was for cutting her life support because he felt that it was inhumane to keep her alive when she is not aware. So this battle went on for 15 years and even her medical team stated that she was in a persistent medical persistent vegetative state with no likelihood of improvement because her brain had so much atrophy and death and eventually her husband won the legal battle and took her off life-saving treatment but you can also understand why there was a legal battle because you never know she might be aware and maybe if they did the fmri on her she would show awareness but Also, she had significant death of a part of her brain, so it's unlikely that she would get a lot of her normal functions back. It's a difficult battle for sure. It's hard to let go of somebody, especially when they show that they're awake, they're opening their eyes, they don't respond meaningfully, but they look awake, so it's kind of hard to let someone go it's definitely a tough topic but due to this new fmri well it's not new but this fmri imaging technique people can actually test if they are conscious or not with this so there's debate on the level of damage so it depends how much damage they have to their brain to affect their level of consciousness in this vegetative state If I was in a vegetative state and I had significant brain atrophy and death um, and I was not fully and I was not consciously aware and I was going to stay in this vegetative state for the rest of my life, I probably wouldn't want to stay on life support. I'm not consciously aware of living anyway. But if I were aware, consciously aware, and I could understand people's questions and answer them accurately by imagining playing tennis or navigating my home then I I would definitely think about if I wanted to stay alive or not but even then it would still be a difficult choice but at the same time right now if I were put into a vegetative state and even if I was consciously aware I'm not able to do anything I can't move and if there's no hope to regain that level of consciousness and awareness and movement back is that really living i i mean i I think this is a very sensitive topic but 
personally, I don't think that would be very fulfilling as a life to not be aware or be able to do anything that I want to do. I'm, I'm curious to what other people would do if they were to want to stay alive, if they were in a vegetative state, if they were conscious or if they would not. And I'm curious to know if other patients have answered if they wanted to stay alive on using this fMRI imaging technique. But I'm sure it's definitely a personal and private matter. And then the last is minimally conscious state. This is another disorder of consciousness and this is the least severe. So they can sometimes respond reliably to environmental stimuli, but it's inconsistent. They cycle through this awareness and then unawareness. So they kind of come in and out of consciousness. And I think this is the most common disorder of consciousness. And then I just have this one bonus which is not really a disorder of consciousness, but it's often mistaken for it. It's called locked-in syndrome. It's really interesting. What happens is someone damages their ventral pons. Their ventral pons is the area of the brain where it contains important nuclei for coordinating movement. And when there's an injury to this area, you're unable to voluntarily move but you retain complete awareness because the rest of your brain is unaffected. So they have complete awareness, but they can't respond to any commands due to the damage in the ventral pons. Sometimes they can blink, but typically they can't voluntarily move anything. It's very rare, but frightening disease. There's an example of this patient named Terry Newberry. I love how the both the patients in the vegetative state and the locked in syndrome are both named terry cool coincidence anyway terry newberry got an infection that attacked his nervous system and he learned to progressively get his motor movements back but when the infection attacked his nervous system it attacked his ventral pond so he was unable to move most of his body except for his eyes and so doctors initially mistook him to be in a coma because he wasn't moving or responding in any meaningful way but then eventually they noticed that his eyes were able to move in a meaningful way so his blinking would be their main method of communication and he was fully aware he could respond purposefully and answer questions correctly he just couldn't move but he was able to gain his motor movements back and this is a really compact complex disorder with complicated rehab but he was able to rehabilitate and get its movement back but it must have been very scary for people to think that you're in a coma and then they realize that you're not and they and that you could hear their conversations and know what's going on and you know what the doctors are doing to you and you know what they're talking about behind your back and you know what your family's saying and everything It must be extremely frightening. With that, that concludes this episode on consciousness. I hope you enjoyed and I'll see you next time.